1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We hear often on this program that we should not pay too close attention. Don't obsess over national polls. The election... Is too far out, the campaigns are focused on early states, you're talking to the wrong people. And that makes sense. But for the incumbent, there's always one reliable poll, and that's the one at the gas pump. For this president, for Joe Biden, it's been a pretty long road too, fighting high oil and gas prices coming out of COVID right in the outset there made worse by the war in Ukraine. Remember the Putin price hike? So before we look at where it is today, let's rewind to January when things were looking a little better.
3: Even though inflation is high in major economies around the world, it's coming down in America month after month, giving families some real breathing room. And the big reason is falling gas prices. My administration took action to get oil onto the market and bring down prices. Now gas is down more than $1.70 from its peak.
2: Okay. And they've been going up this summer. As I read on the terminal US retail regular gasoline price is up to $3.73 a gallon in the week ended August 4. I also find a story here that says easing US pump prices signal some relief in inflation fight. Pump prices falling or holding stable since Friday according to the American Automobile Association. The easing comes after a 17-day rally. It took prices to an eight-month high, largely the result of slipping oil prices, reflecting global demand woes. Which brings me to the front page here at GasBuddy Fuel Insights. $3.80 a gallon. That's the live tick right now as we look at gas prices nationally, realizing that not all states are in the same place. So we wanted to take a closer look at this with Patrick DeHaan, the head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy, the man who crunches the numbers here. Patrick, it's been a while, and we welcome you back. Some folks were projecting $4 a gallon this summer. Uh, I don't know if that's still possibly in the cards, but where are we now compared to where we were in January?
3: Well, as you mentioned, we've come a long way, and gas prices have certainly escalated into the summer months as more Americans have hit the road. I don't know that $4 a gallon is something that will happen this summer, but with hurricane season and ocean temperatures now uh, at some of the highest levels we've seen, there's still the potential that a hurricane could disrupt the flow uh, of oil into refineries and the flow of gasoline out of them. Uh, but we have seen a big rally of uh, gasoline prices started the year, the national average at about $3 and 17 cents a gallon. So we've seen quite the rally, as you mentioned, three eighty a gallon, We're down just about a penny from our peak just a few days ago. But um, with OPEC cutting production, or I should say the Saudis cutting production, extending that into September, Mm -hmm. uh, there is some upside risk here.
2: And if you're Joe Biden, it's more about refilling the SPR right now rather than drawing it lower. I suppose uh, that's been at least some of the strategy coming out of the White House here. Does that further tighten things with the war in Ukraine showing no sign of ending as well?
3: Well, I think the Biden administration has a couple different angles that they could get hit. You know, the SPR gas prices reaching record levels last year, although that was really a function of Russia's war in Ukraine and overall, gas price is still quite elevated. Uh, now, for its part, the Department of Energy has told the market it's going to throttle back and slow down and stop purchasing when oil prices are above the prescribed range as they are today, mm-hmm. just to make it clearly evident that the US government, the Department of Energy, is not going to be a buyer when oil prices are high. Um, having said that, uh, there have been a couple purchases uh, that were made, I think about 12 million barrels when you piece it all together. Um, the administration has also canceled required sales that uh, existed or were mandated before the administration um, was uh, took over, that is, for Trump. So mm-hmm. 140 million barrels were canceled that had been mandated to sell. Now, you know, I don't know how every American is going to look at it, whether that's, you know, a simple replacement or if that can offset what we've withdrawn. But I think most Americans would agree, especially the administration agrees, that Seeing what happened with Russia's war in Ukraine, there is a need for a strategic reserve and that it's better to have more oil in it than less. But I don't know with the Saudis Mm -hmm. and Russians cutting production significantly, if the Department of Energy is going to have enough latitude, uh, enough time to put a dent in the amount of oil that was sold out of it in time for the election.
2: How long is it going to take to refill it?
3: Well, it really depends on a lot of different factors. Certainly the the pace of the economic recovery is a big one uh, because if the economy doesn't need the crude oil, the gasoline, the diesel, the jet fuel, then it's far easier for the administration to refill it. But signs are looking like the economy may be able to avoid a deeper recession uh, or a recession altogether. And that means the administration is likely going to have to be more patient, uh, especially in light of the Saudi and and Russian production cut that's happening now, there's less oil on the market. Uh, You could argue that there's already an imbalance between supply and demand. And that's what the Department of Energy is stopping its acquisition of crude oil to refill the SPR. So I I mean, very quickly here, things have swung, the pendulum has swung completely the opposite direction where the market is extremely tight. And the Department of Energy has no choice but to really sit on the sidelines. And that's something that may be persistent, especially going into the months ahead if the Fed is close to being done with its interest rate increases. That mm-hmm. means that potentially twenty twenty four at some time the interest rate might start coming back down, and that could bolster economic activity.
2: <laughs> it's interesting when you think about the cross currents and the different combinations we could get right in the middle of an election campaign. I'm looking at uh, crude oil here on the terminal. Uh, we're just above eighty two dollars a barrel, up uh, fractionally today, but that's still the highest since. Looks like the middle of April, uh, as I'm looking at the chart here, how much of this has to do simply uh, with the price of crude versus refining issues, demand in the summer driving season?
3: Well, I think um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, Number one, the price of crude oil being so much higher has pushed the price of gasoline up. But a lot of this came a lot of the increase in gasoline prices has come relatively quickly, fast and furious, I suppose, in the last couple of weeks. And that has also been partially due to triple digit temperatures in areas where there are uh, where there are a lot of refineries and where there are a significant amount of refining capacity in Texas and Louisiana. Keep in mind that, you know, a refinery is not just like restarting your computer, right? Where it takes 30 seconds or a minute. Some of these outages that have been brought on by triple digit temperature first of all equipment is sensitive when you expose electronics to triple digit temperatures because refineries are exposed to these high temperatures um it it can pose a challenge but then there's also the 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 uh, chemistry the the physics of it that thermal expansion is a real thing and when you're talking about 115 degree heat that really reduces Mm -hmm. capacity or throughput at refineries so there's a lot of issues. You know, we saw it this winter. Remember that cold snap last December caused a yep, refinery yep. fire in Chicago, uh, in uh, Colorado, and that lasted months. So, extreme weather, cold or warm, uh, can dent refining capacity, and that's where we are now. And that's that, along with the price of crude oil, which is up for six straight weeks, has pushed the price of gasoline up. And for diesel, by the way, um, obviously the fuel of of uh, the economy, diesel prices are going to continue trending up. Whereas gasoline prices mar- might uh, might trend a little bit lower. And then we get a little bit of a break in September mm-hmm. as we roll back to cheaper winter gasoline. But diesel, the outlook is, is not nearly as positive. Diesel prices can continue to make advances, especially going into the fall.
2: And that's supply chain, of course. Never mind people in the northeast eating their homes. I don't know, right. uh, Patrick, maybe Elon Musk can start building refineries <laughs> in orbit. Maybe that's the answer to climate change. Patrick DeHaan, it's great to have you back. Let's stay in touch. The head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: And I want to hear from the panel on this, but first I'll bring you back almost exactly a month. It was the 10th of July when Maria Bartiromo asked on Fox News, what happened?
3: Failure to launch Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign <laughs> to topple Donald Trump has stalled. We are way behind, says a top DeSantis PAC official sounding the alarm. What happened? <laughs> oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things.
2: It's not been a month of delivering. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist, joined today by Roger Fist, the Democratic analyst president, New Day Strategy. Rick, uh, you're the king of the rebound here, the king of the reset. There's a reason why they call you when they start writing articles about this kind of stuff. Was this the right move? Do you go to the campaign manager? What would you tell Ron DeSantis to do today? He doesn't have that much time.
5: Well, he's he's had to take some kind of action because uh in the middle of the reboot he's not getting the 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 reaction that he really wanted and, and, and it's not for his lack of trying. You know, he's he's opened himself up to the media and it's been some Embarrassing moments, like you know, on CNN yesterday when he had to answer the question: "Is is, is Joe Biden the official, you know, president of the United States?" and mm. and so you know he's taken those risks, but the the problem he's got is he doesn't have a well of support of people who have had experience in national campaigns, and and with all due respect, national campaigns are different than running a state campaign, especially against weak opponents, which is what you know, they've been doing in the, in, in the governor's mansion. So mm. to bring in his chief of staff, I'm sure that creates confidence amongst his staff and gives the candidate and his spouse some comfort. Um, but he's not going to have any better sense of what's going to be expected of him next because he's never been through a cycle like this. And if you haven't been to Iowa and you haven't been to New Hampshire and you haven't seen the craziness around Super Tuesday, you're, you're, you're going to make rookie mistakes because you're a rookie. And that's exactly what's posing right now for the uh, for the Desantis campaign.
2: Yeah, this is interesting to go to the chief of staff in the Florida governor's office. Uh, Roger is a smart move, or to Rick's point, the calls coming from inside the house.
6: Yeah, to speak to inside the house, one of the most one of the one of the signals that I see of a of a of a weak campaign is the leaking Um, and it says something about the ascendance of super PACs, where all of a sudden super PACs feel like they should be speaking to the press and driving this kind of kind of internal process messaging that speaks to a house divided that speaks to the inability of the governor to lead a complex effort uh like this to to rick's point some so the the person that they're bringing in probably addresses some kind of comfort level some kind of trust issue etc But I don't know how many more reboots you get. I mean, maybe they're going for the trifecta this summer and they're doing one reboot a month or something like that with the idea of getting this out of the way by Labor Day. But at best, especially in this climate where there's virtually no oxygen and you really have only the room to get through one kind of narrative or one kind of um, selling point. And right now, at least for the summer back into the late spring, the, the one thing everyone knows about DeSantis is they can't stabilize that ship and he can't get ahead um and that's that that's what that whole campaign is communicating right now
2: how often does a campaign come back after ditching a campaign manager rick
5: no they they always ditch the campaign manager (laughs) you know every campaign i've been involved in since ronald reagan you know ditch the campaign manager and some more ceremoniously than others but uh the reality is it's It's extremely difficult job uh you you really don't ever get a chance to uh look like you're succeeding because there's no situation until you hit the nomination that you've succeeded so uh you know you don't raise enough money bitch a campaign manager you don't have good polling bitch a campaign manager you know something stupid <laughs> was said by a spokesman ditch a campaign manager so this isn't this isn't an extraordinary moment. what's extraordinary about it is that his entire campaign is failing. And so now all the pressure is going to be on the new campaign manager who doesn't have the experience to know what to do next. And, 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 and I think that's the biggest flaw that DeSantis has is he has never surrounded himself with political pros. He surrounded himself with different campaign managers for every campaign he's ever had. Uh, and, and usually, you know, successful presidential campaigns, you're surrounded by a trusted group of aides That have seen the success and the failures in your office and and know how to handle it both you and the political situations that present themselves
2: so roger what would you tell ron desantis to do i know you're not working for him but is it more interviews is it is it a different are you just you're 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 reaching into the wrong pot here stop playing up to maga what's the advice
6: I just like mathematically i don't see where he thinks he can grow because most of his campaign is based on the vilification of roughly half the country and then the and then the maga base already has their their date to the dance as it were so there's no there's no room to move there so at least in the context of the primaries i don't see where he grows
2: mike pence makes news qualifies for the debate and you can picture it now rick Eight people on one stage. Is this a Mike Pence rising, Ron DeSantis falling moment?
5: Well, it's it's very hard to see if there's any momentum in the under ticket. Um, and, uh, and yet, if there is some, I would say the contrast that Mike Pence has been able to draw with Trump. Um, which is something actually I think Roger was alluding to that DeSantis has not been able to do, right? He really hasn't said, I'm the anti-Trump. And to some degree, Pence's conduct since the indictment by the DOJ on January 6th charges, um, he's taken a very strong stance. You know, it's me and the Constitution versus Donald Trump, which would rather have. And and I think that has boosted him up a little bit. It'll be seen – You know, it's difficult to see how he takes advantage of it. Like Roger said, where you take your stance, Mm -hmm. there's not a natural battleground for him. Uh, But uh, but he's about the only one getting positive media right now. And and that's saying something in a field of a dozen people.
2: That really is. Um, Roger, should we put Jeb Bush on the phone with Ron DeSantis? Is that what this is? (laughs)
6: I I don't to 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 provide what kind of uh, advice. I mean, these reboots. Is he the Jeb Bush of
2: this campaign? I mean, look back to that incredible narrative coming in, and this just the the straight decline that followed his announcement.
6: Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you this very quickly. I shared a plane with Boris Epstein once. We were both sitting next to each other, and the thing that we ended up agreeing on: we're in a past, we're in a post coronation political environment, these ideas that these super PACs raise a hundred grand and et cetera. Jeb, I think, walked in the door with a hundred grand already raised, et cetera. Those days are over in terms of correlating that to any on the ground support. Um, the 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 voters are able to access a lot more of their own information. They're able to do their own kind of due diligence on the candidates. And there's much different ways to get messaging out to people. So this kind of top down walking in the door with tens of millions of dollars and being the industry favorite, I think, at least for right now, those days are over. And the governor of Florida is learning that the hard way.
2: Fascinating. Uh, that must have been quite a conversation on that plane. Roger Fisk and Rick Davis are with us here on Bloomberg Sound On with a new poll out of Arizona, And, of course, we've got Mr. Arizona with us right now. Rick, I'd love your insights here on the Emerson poll. Trump, 58. Ron DeSantis, 11. We're talking about a 47-point spread. Put that aside for one second. Third place is a guy named Chris Christie at 6%. He's outrunning Ramaswamy, Pence, Haley Scott, and the rest. What do these numbers do for you in a state like Arizona?
5: You know, I, I have to say it's too early to tell. None of these candidates have spent any time in Arizona. The Arizonians are baking in over 110 degree heat. <laughs> They're not even at home. Uh, hopefully they found a nice beach somewhere to last the summer. Uh, but the reality is that the campaign hasn't even started in Arizona. It is way too soon to to, to say any of these numbers are meaningful. Um, and, and there's so little in the under ticket, you know, DeSantis at 11 and Christie at six, it, it's virtually meaningless. You could make the narrative, oh, my God, Christie's coming up on Ronda's," Right. Exactly. Except they're both 40 per- percent below Donald Trump. So it's meaningless. Uh, I, I actually think the one thing that people are paying attention to is the Senate race, because you could have a very unusual situation where you have a legitimate three way race with yes. uh, Senator Cinema actually declaring, that she's an independent, now she hasn't declared that she's going to run for reelection, so you've got kind of a flip of a coin there. but um, it'll be fascinating to see how these numbers shake out because we rarely get to see a legitimate three-way race with an incumbent being in the third spot. That's right, and Absolutely. so that'll tell us a lot about the viability of these third party campaigns.
2: As we also wait for uh, everyone to announce on the Republican side, Lake 42, Lamb 11, Masters 7. Fascinating.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Steeple Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. We're listening on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Let's reassemble our panel for their take on this. Rick Davis joins, of course, Bloomberg politics contributor, Republican strategist. Roger Fisk is here as well, Democratic analyst, president, New Day Strategies. Uh, Rick, we've talked about a lot of these state-by-state examples of abortion rights uh, since the Roe ruling by the Supreme Court. Is it fair to frame this story as such, or should Ohioans be voting on ballot access? Because we've seen a lot of interesting parties get involved here. Businesses, for instance, are supporting passage of this measure because they don't want to see other things like a minimum wage or legalizing marijuana get on uh, a ballot either. How should we be focusing on this? What's the smart view?
5: Yeah, I think that uh, the uh, no vote uh, constituency, the no vote campaign has done an incredibly good job of making this about abortion. Um, obviously, there are um, other issues, as you point out, that could be subject to uh, this kind of a ballot measure, which is, by the way, status quo anti. It can be happening right now. And that is what the, the, the yes campaign has done is said, Hey, why don't you worry about all these other things that could be put on uh the mm-hmm. constitution, you know, with a simple majority. And and yet, you know, you can't help but look back at what happened, as you said, in Michigan and can and Kansas and not think, you know, there's a movement um in the states that was launched by the Dodd decision. Uh, that is a constituency of pro-choice activists uh, exerting their will on the public and in, and in bright red states. Uh, and so I think that this is one to watch if it falls the way current polling looks, um, the no campaign wins. And I think arguably the pro-choice abortion activists are going to have a, another win under their belt in a decidedly Republican state.
2: Is that what you expect, Roger? Uh, We pointed out in our story, uh, a USA Today Suffolk poll found just last month, 58 percent of likely Ohio voters support enshrining abortion rights in their constitution.
6: Yeah, I think that's the way it's going to go. I I agree with Rick. And if if that is the way that the, the voting goes, then that's good policy. And if it fails, then it's good politics because the more people try to push this on the state level in terms of making it more difficult to enshrine uh, women's access to a full spectrum of health care decisions, they're essentially assembling the, the, the Biden Enthusiasm Act on a state-by-state basis because all of that momentum um, becomes very, very helpful as you head into the fall of 2024.
2: It's interesting here that there are a lot of different ways they could get this done, Rick is is getting on the ballot in this form, considering the movement that you just referred to a better option than moving through the legislature?
5: Well, I think it was a a very defensive measure, um, you know, and uh, and yet it accomplishes the same thing. This is a proxy vote, you know for, as right. Roger said, enshrining uh, uh, abortion rights into the Constitution. Uh, because that'll be the next thing that gets teed up. And, and so, uh, you have to deal with the, the process you're given And in Ohio, they have this quirky process that, um, that, that allows them to do this kind of uh, referendum. Uh, and it's confusing. I mean, you know, you would think the no was a yes and the yes was a no the way yeah, right. most people think about this thing. But, uh, in this case, uh, they've made it very clear in the state and, and look, um, some Republican activists, um, uh, Frank LaRose, a, a good example, Secretary of State who's running in a primary to be the next United States Senator, has been the face of the uh, the Yes campaign. And they've made the case that this could bring all kinds of, you know, sort of, what do they call it, malign, liberal uh, East Coast uh, influences to our pristine Ohio. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and that doesn't seem to be shaking the vote loose. As you say, there's already as many people – who have voted, you know, through Friday that yeah. almost voted the entire midterm election. I mean, that's extraordinary turnout.
2: It really is. Uh, yeah, one of the pro issue one ads, Roger said that out-of-state groups will try to California our Ohio, which did make me chuckle. Oppressive regulations on farmers, government rent control, grocery bag taxes, all could be part of your reality. Roger, what does that early turnout tell you?
6: It's very reminiscent to Kansas and also the Wisconsin Supreme Court um, race, I would throw in this bucket as well. Um, I don't know. Maybe Ohio would not like to be the sixth largest economy in the world. I'm I'm thinking maybe there could be some upsides um, for them if they were to look at it through a broader lens. But um, this is this is um, very, very motivating uh, for the base and as always, when you combine a movement like this with the former president's alienation of educated suburban women, it just makes it more and more difficult for these folks to reach out to those suburbs when it comes time for the general election.
2: Man, what? <laughs> I can only imagine what you think may be emerging economy for Ohio. Where were you going?
6: <laughs> I mean, uh, no, I'm sorry. I switched to the politics, which is to say I- when when you see movements like this um that are specifically focused on abortion let's be let's be candid yeah. um and then you look at what uh the demographic uh, around who uh, was alienated by the former president in for example georgia sure. they're not winning over educated suburban women anytime soon with with initiatives like this
2: i just figured if there's an upside to not being the sixth largest economy i, just, I was trying to finish your sentence for you there Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern time at Bloomberg.com.